So welcome back to part two of This Septic Isle, the David Gill story, or David Gill, the British Tiger King, as I believe we're calling it. I'm uh, joined once again by Geordie Paul. How are you doing, Geordie? Just great. I mean, it's almost worse coming into it this time because, you know, last time I was like a baby. I had no idea what to expect, whereas, you know, I've sort of had an introductory taste into what's coming and I, I can't say I'm entirely looking forward to it. I would say that is a pretty good attitude to have. So um, for anyone coming into this new, I would recommend listening to part one. But um, if you maybe uh, not 100% sure on what happened, we just sort of got a bit of an introduction to David Gill, you know, the early days of South Lakes, his uh, rhino hunting adventures, um, which are perhaps a bit less dramatic when the rhino is one that you are supposed to own and be protecting. And um, we left it with his attempts to establish Mariba Wild Animal Park, which ended in police raids and an alliance with a uh, politically dubious figure known as Bob Catter. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. Also, I have a bit of a correction to make. Uh, last time I had that Bob Catter was uh, a Labour Party MP, I actually got a mistake of his, uh, his father, who was a, uh, a lifelong Labour activist. Bob Catter is uh, more of a, a sort of an agrarian party MP. So they're a group which have uh, sort of socialist economic policies and uh, very conservative social ones so I just think it's important to to make that clarity you know I don't want to be uh, you know not admitting when I've made a mistake or trying to give you the wrong impression of somebody so just wanted to, to get that one out there early doors um, so picking up the story where we left off uh, David Gill tried to establish things in Mariba and He's back in Cumbria. So David Gill and Shelley Goodwin returned to England and he resumed his duties overseeing South Lake Zoo. Business as usual resumed and for South Lakes that meant animal escapes that could be deemed preventable. In 2006, a coati, a small omnivorous creature from South America, managed to do what Zimba the rhino had not and make its way off site, eventually being located and tranquilized in someone's garden. Other issues related to the lemurs and parrots that roam freely around the park and made sporadic bids for freedom into the surrounding countryside. This was flagged in a September 2006 report that described these escapes as, quote, a matter for concern and made a number of suggestions about how to prevent these occurrences. Judging on what went on to happen over the next decade, it's not unreasonable to assume they were not followed. As I said, gets, gets back and there appears to have been little to no learning from, uh, from either what's happened in Australia or what's happened previously in England. Um, I mean, at least, you know, these things are tranquilizable. You know, it, it's not giant rhinos, but at the same time, you know, he hasn't learned how to use a padlock yet. And that's a bit concerning. I mean, koatis are cute, but, um, you know, they are an omnivorous animal. They've got a, a strong bite. They can take a chicken's head off in one bite. Um, so, you know, you think that could be a finger, you know, particularly if a child. Yeah, so like, it's, it's uh, absolutely. Yeah, good. Like, you wouldn't let like an out of control dog near a child, but then, you know, some caged up animal that I, I can't imagine was treated incredibly well to, you know, make such a bid for escape. You would be miffed if you were a David Gill inhabitant at, uh, at South Lake Zoo. You know, you're... Uh... <laughs> it, I wouldn't be my ideal situation to find myself in. <laughs> it's, um... God. Oh, it's, it's, you know, if you're reincarnated as a, a creature in a Gill collection, you've, you've done some shit in your previous life. I think you've probably been David Gill if that's what's happened. Uh, David. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing that's notable here is, you know, you're getting this formal report, which uh, is, is identifying a bit of a pattern, and it's the first time that's been seen by outsiders. So, you know, you still got Zimba, as, as we discussed last time, could have been seen as a uh, uh, an awful one-off incident. Maybe it was managed poorly, but 
one-off incident stuff in Australia. You can make arguments about cultural differences or the difficulty. He was know. brand new to the country. He was just he was just getting sent. There's our language barrier, isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, large companies, larger companies than a, a two-bit wildlife park have struggled to open up overseas branches. So, again, whilst I'm not saying this is what it is, from Gil's point of view, he could present that as an excuse. Um, I think here we are actually seeing somebody one identifying it and two actually trying to give professional advice which it it's getting more and more irrefutable to say you know that he's a pretty bad zoo owner he is yeah he he is really really um really out of his depth i feel a lot earlier than becomes transparent and again we'll see later in the story as things begin to go really wrong for him but i think that's why it's important to take it from this point is you can you can follow uh, the patterns that have happened. As we've established as well, you know, when David Gill is not doing weird things to animals, he is trying to do weird things to women. And uh, by that, I mean, you know, get into relationships which are ethically dubious. Shelley Goodwin, as we've established, is currently David Gill's wife. But at some point, it's not exactly clear when, it appears that Gill and Goodwin's relationship broke down because he moved on to Caroline Jellico, another zoo employee who bore him two more children, then in 2007, he began his relationship with Alison Creary. I mean, he's a, you know, again, an employee. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily... It's an odd repeated pattern. Yeah. And I mean, not... that could really sum this guy up at this point. It's, it's a series of odd repeated patterns. And they're not so much co-workers when you're the owner of the business. Yeah. You know, you, you you do have that um that dynamic issue whether you like it or not. You know, it's it's not like a sort of serial workplace data. It it is again, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything sinister about it, but odd, certainly. So Alison Creary was the estranged wife of former Barrow Rugby League player Richard Creary, who I looked up on a series of rugby league websites and managed to find him in uh, you know, a Barrow site. I think he played about four cup games for them over the course of two years. So, you know, when they say former rugby league player, I think they're pushing this a little bit for uh, the sake of the narrative when this hits the tabloids. Um, you know, even like Jason Robinson, he was, you know, sort of a former Barrow squad player at best, but still better than you and I but but not an international it is not hard to be better than me at rugby you know (laughs) just very much need to get that one out there particularly pace up for 80 minutes league of its emphasis on fitness and tackle technique (laughs) um so Alison Creer is not only reeling from the breakup of her marriage but also from the tragic deaths of her father and half-brother who had drowned at Ulverston Sands Uh, I believe in the same instant as well so you know a horrible thing for anybody to have to go through David met her in the playground of a school that each of their children uh, respectively attended, and in his own words, she'd had a bad experience and we just got on. We started seeing each other over the summer, end quote. He reports how Richard Creary had attempted to confront him at a school sports day, but Gil brushed him off and did not see it as a concern. This would prove to be a mistake, when in August, Creary armed himself with a knife, then scaled the walls of the zoo before breaking into Gil's home where he found the zoo owner in bed with Allison. Jesus. Yeah, oh, I mean, this next I, I would bit. just like to point out, you know, I do appreciate the lack of security goes both ways. Not only can animals get out, Richard crew can get in. <laughs> David Gill's got a very sort of libertarian approach. It's consistently approach. shit. 
<laughs> just <laughs> I don't believe in barriers for animals and I don't believe in barriers for people. <laughs> just God. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that. <laughs> Maybe he was planning on just tranquilizing anybody in his or breaking into the property. <laughs> Teach the police marksman how to take out query. God. Well, this comes up to my next bit, which I feel bad for laughing at it because, you know, in one level, it, it is potentially going to end a man's life. But on the other, this was very nearly the uh, the title for this episode. When he found them, Creary, enraged, screamed, you're shagging my wife, you're going to die. Jesus. Yeah. That's, that's concerning. Surprisingly coherent as well. Um, but, you know, uh, he then proceeded to slam Gil against the wall and plunge the knife he was holding into his neck. Remarkably, Gil not only survived this, but managed to, ev- to evade his attacker and run the best part of a mile to the nearest house to get help. Police subsequently arrived to take Creary into custody while medical attention was given to Gil. The incident was traumatic for everyone involved, and Gil cites it as the reason that he and Alison stopped seeing each other. You think, David? Oh, like once again, yeah, it's, you know, that's quite a reasonable breakdown of a relationship. But like, it's not his first. Or, or indeed, is that second? Yeah, I mean, the thing from this one as well was, uh, and I don't want to be getting too into this because I feel it's a bit sort of soap opera-y. I feel, you know, I'll go on to say this, this isn't Gil's fault. Like, Jen, you know, no, I, like, I, no. I will bash the man for a lot of things. But, you know, she was, to all intents and purposes, a single woman. Um, the, the marriage was over. Gil was, again, a single man. She was an age-appropriate partner. And I realise, you know, that's quite a judgmental thing to say, but you know what I mean? In terms of she wasn't so significantly younger than him that there could be an unhealthy power dynamic that didn't work together. You know, like on paper, this is actually probably his best, best relationship. Yeah, certainly since the first wife. You know, this, this, and you think something like this happens, which again, you know, may, uh, may impact of the way that he thinks going forward of, of, He's actually maybe trying to do something properly and it's not worked out. And it's not a defense for some of the things he goes on to do and say. You know, it is it is sort of odd, isn't it, when one of the least objectionable things David Gill does leads to arguably the most severe set of consequences he ever faces. Yeah. Like nothing else has stuck to him so far. Like the only time he's ever faced a consequence is when he's actually not done anything wrong. So you kind of start to see why he builds up that idea in his mind that, you know, I might as well just you know, lie, manipulate, and go out with, you know, young girls. Yeah. Oh, dear. So, as I said, this is the only incident we'll cover today where he was unequivocally the victim. Um, and I think there's something quite interesting about this, because, you know, you look at the the stuff you've known already about his sort of battle of the authorities, is aligning with an anti-authoritarian Australian MP. Um, some of the stuff we're going to go on to here. He does view himself... I think the phrase I used in the first episode was iconoclast. And, you know, as somebody who's, who's the underdog, always fighting against it. But the this one occasion where he is unequivocally the victim and sort of genuinely deserving of sympathy, he doesn't really seem to have built much of the narrative around. And I think it is that peculiar sense of, of wanting all of the, the righteous anger of victimisation without having to deal with the real consequences of it. Yeah, and I think you get that a lot, you know, with a certain type of person where being the victim sort of fuels the narrative for them. But they're they're often quite used to privilege and and actually, you know, 
don't want to be the victim because it's, it's not very fun being the victim. It looks terrible. You know, as someone who is very, very rarely the victim can attest, it, it does not look fun. But it, I do think it is, you know, peculiar that when he, I'm not saying he got what he wanted because, you know, for God's sake, he was stabbed in the neck. Um, but, you know, this, this one case of sort of being unequivocally morally righteous to all but, you know, the most sort of solid devotees of the sanctity of marriage. And yet he, uh, this isn't a big part of the, the Gill narrative. So I don't know. I just, I just think it's an interesting observation, you know, like sort of uh, in, in terms yeah. of trying to build a, a character profile for the man. I, I don't know. Maybe there's nothing in it, but I just thought it was a sort of an odd little, uh, an odd little factor. Uh, I think the other thing this this instant revealed was kind of the the nascent press interest in him, because yeah, you know, there's, there's obviously been the the escape rhino, but that was you know, it's an escape rhino. That was the story not the man who Zoo escaped from. Yes, there was that silly photo of him, um, but that seemed to generate more outrage in the zoological community um, than reels of nationwide press interest. Um, so the Daily Mail <clears throat> reported that he was a millionaire and described him as the Ferrari driving zoo owner. Uh, other reports state that he had a Bentley, but again, that he had some sort of luxury car, I feel is a fairly consistent uh, thing mentioned across uh, you know sort of different reports uh in fact the express even reported that Cree vandalized a bentley continental belonging to gill before entering the property there's two interesting quotes in the daily mail article about the attack one from richard asking how can i compete when he's got a bentley and a zoo and another from uh, creary's mother saying that gill has a hell of a reputation with women so it's not so much those what those people are saying but the fact that that's what made it into print because I feel yeah, he's he's very much like a character now, isn't he? Yeah, this sort of zoo owning playboy. Yeah, you know, it's very much a sort of keeping up with the Kardashian style. You know, where does the fiction and reality, you know, blend? Yeah, not not even so much that. I think it's it's you know this. He's almost tying into that great British eccentric type thing, isn't he? You know, of the sort of <clears throat> the sort of Bertie Wooster type character. You know, you could almost see it of a a young sports car driving eccentric country lord of some ridiculous menagerie but he, he's generally quite dangerous and that that didn't seem to come to light until significantly later you know instead we've got um david gill as, as a figure of interest you know, you know man stabbed in neck by love rival is always going to be picked up on by certain tabloids um and when you throw in this background the other thing i think is a uh, that that personal wealth you know it attests to the zoo. I think his father was a magistrate, so he came from comfortable stock. But you know what I mean? There's no implication he was born outlandishly wealthy. Um, yeah, that, that sort of, you know, the I, I hate to use, you know, the great British dream, you know, in a parody of the American dream. But almost, yeah, it combines that great British, like, eccentricity with, you know, the idea of, you know, working your way up into being able to live that lavish lifestyle as well. He got rich doing his passion. That, which, you know, I think yeah. something outside of professional sports people is, is quite rare. Yeah, like, absolutely, you know, very few people can do what they love. You know, it's the sort of the, the sad reality of adulthood. Um, and, you know, I think people naturally gravitate to those that have. Yeah, well, that's, you know, sort of whether for emulation or jealousy or just sort of curiosity. But, um, you know, as we've established, he's probably a millionaire it's it's very hard to get 
concrete figures on David Gill's net worth. And that will again become important later on. Um, but most sources are that, you know, he probably had assets totaling over a million in value, particularly if you include the zoo. Um, I don't know what his, you know, actual you know, sort of cash reserves were like, but he was definitely doing well for himself. Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. You, know, you, so, you don't own a zoo when you're broke. Yeah, a zoo and a sports car, you know, and not just, you know, any sport, you know, a Bentley Continental, particularly back then, very expensive. You think about, you think you're looking at, if it's not quite six figures, you're not getting much change out of it. No. Uh, so, like many men who become rich through their business dealings, David's ambition began to exceed what had already brought him success, and he started casting his eyes towards entering a new arena. Throughout his time running the zoo, David, like many other owners of large private ventures, had clashed repeatedly with the local council on a variety of matters, including the scale of expansion that he dreamt of for his park. They were also the body responsible for providing a zoo license and carrying out any inspections to see whether he was meeting the necessary criteria to keep it. Despite his many transgressions, when it came to retaining his license, Gill had the significant advantage of owning by far the biggest tourist attraction in the area, and the only one bringing in large numbers of visitors from further afield. So you've got to look as well. Finesse is, it's near the Lake District, but it's not, you know, when you go there and you, you probably go to sort of Keswick, um, you know, sort of do, you know, Hellbell and Cat Bells, that kind of thing. It's yeah, a bit yeah. out the way from that. It's, it's, I think, just over an hour's drive. Um, so, you know, it's, if you're going up for a, a weekend in the lakes, it, it's possible you might sort of go across Furnace, but, it would be very out your way. So they're not enjoying this sort of you know, trickle of tourist cash that neighbouring areas are. But when the zoo opens, you know, you've got a reason. So those people who are doing that weekend, particularly if they've got kids, go down to Keswick for the bank holiday, say, a day out in the zoo with the children, it's genuinely bringing tourists in, uh, something which no one else is doing. And when- It's very easy to turn a blind eye when you see this person is sort of, fueling your community oh exactly i mean you know it, it is i think it is quite hard to overstate the importance of uh, of what he was doing uh particularly when you factor in cumbria is amongst the poorest counties in england consistently on most metrics and removing something as profitable as south lake zoo would have been an unpopular and controversial decision at least in this point in time still there was a lot of distance between shutting the zoo down and allowing the kind of unfettered expansion that gill had in mind and as the saying goes if you can't beat them get a seat on their governing body and leverage it for personal gain. I mean, oh, you're probably guessing where this is going, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going down the Joe Exotic route, baby. <laughs> uh, I, I feel, you know, I thought I'd try saying baby there, see how it felt. It felt weird. I'm not going to do it again. Apologies to the listeners. It's not you. you know. It's not me. It's not me. But, you know, this is all about experimentation and finding our feet, you know. You just yeah. haven't found yours yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I've done this is because no other network would hire me, and I feel we're beginning to get an insight into why. Um, you turn up to interviews and you just say the word baby. Yeah, just, just repeatedly. I mean, just in answer to questions to which it could not possibly bear any relevance. Uh, I'm going to leave that there before it turns problematic. Um, so, Rhino Rampages aside... Gill's standing in the local community was still relatively decent at this point, and it was this regard that he was hoping to parlay into votes. In April 2008, Gill became a member of the Barrow and Furness Conservative Association and was rapidly announced as a candidate for the upcoming borough council elections on May the 1st. 
As far as I can tell, he sadly declined to use tigers in any attempt to win votes, but I'm happy to be proved wrong if any listeners can email in with evidence to the contrary. So, yes, straight out of the Joe Exotic playbook. Again, there are alarming similarities, really, aren't there, you know, when you look at him? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a real question of, is this sort of a path that tracks for that sort of type, that type of person, you know, maybe in this case, because it's a zoo, it's hyper-specific, you know, sort of narcissist acquires important, enticing thing and sort of uses it to wreak havoc on the public. Yeah, I mean... Again, I don't know whether it's sort of just a westernized zoo owning thing. I'd be really curious if there were stories um, in, say, any African country or perhaps India or China, which sort of echo this as well. Because if it was sort of a, a cross-cultural phenomenon, that would be fascinating. I, I haven't really done much research into it. Again, I'd be very eager if anybody can point me in the direction of, uh, you know, sort of similar figures um, who have sort of done something like this. But I think the the other thing that is when you look at him sort of being a local celebrity maybe pushing it but certainly a local figure being sort of parachuted into politics particularly around that time wasn't maybe as odd as it seemed i know it was around this time that the cricketer darren goff who played for lancashire david cameron was approaching him about running in a, a northwest seat for the conservatives and the, the, apparently they did have quite a serious conversation about it because they thought his you know his sporting popularity could be leveraged in the votes so yeah uh, and I mean, yeah, it is sort of the council seats, which are arguably the, the most accessible yeah. in terms of electoral you know, opportunity. I it's not like, you know, he's, he's been approved for sort of being, you know, an MP. They, you know, I have noticed they tend to vet their councillor candidates a lot less. You know, you can tell that, especially if you go on Twitter. Well, I was just thinking you were going to go down the lines of David Gill and Vets, uh, you know, two groups that don't get on. <laughs> what do you mean you have to feed them? You don't he know. doesn't like to be vetted, nor does he, you know, deal with vets. No vetting for me and no vetting for the animals. <laughs> uh, David, making, making horrendous animal abuse an amusing topic. Uh, it's not. It's really not. Please don't come after me. Please don't send Peter. So... David stood for Dalton South, a seat that returned three councillors, finishing fourth and missing out on taking office by a single vote. I've actually got here in uh, the Barrow and Finesse electoral history for council seats because I'm fun and cool and that's what I spend my time looking at. So we've got it here exactly. David Gill in fourth. Uh, the winner was Bell T, Conservative, with uh, 689 votes. Uh, D. James, Miss. Conservative, 623. Jay Miller, Independent, 577. And David Gill, Conservative, 576. The next highest was the, the Lib Dem candidate, uh, F. Murray, with 377. So he did well. Like, yeah, like that, that's impressive. I mean, OK, he's you know, campaigning he... as part of, in a way, a legitimate, recognised, well-funded party. Yeah, so, you know, obviously there's a certain percentage of votes are attracted to that. But the, the fact there was an independent in there as well, you know, clearly shows, you know, I do think obviously his personality and probably, like I said, standing in the community did have an impact on it. Yeah, so you know what I mean? Like, it, it, I think it also shows that it wasn't as mad an idea as perhaps it may have first come across. And Paris is one of those areas which it, it's, re, it's returned a reasonable split of sort of, you know, when I'm looking across these results, there's a, a reasonable Labour-Tory split. So it's not, you know, 
it's far from a safe seat. There's a couple of other independents in there, is at least one other, I think. So you know, it's not. Um, it's um, there's three People's Party MPs as well, which is MPs, councillors, which is you know really a bit of a throwback. But um, yeah, so it, it is a relatively open area. You know, I don't feel it is like certain parts of the country where you know you could pin a sort of red or blue rosette on an ape and it would get in. Yeah. Which again, I think if Gil had thought that would have worked, you know, you would have had a, a oh, chimp. absolutely you would have done that. Yeah, you'd have had a chimp out there so fast it would have made your head spin. <laughs> but he's not firing tranquilizing darts anymore, he's firing rosettas. So as the animals escape, they're actively canvassing for his chosen party. Yeah. I mean the argument of looking at this this election result is perhaps it was a blessing in disguise, even for Gill, as suggestions of a conflict of interest would inevitably have bounded should Gill have been part of the decision-making process where his zoo was concerned. It's unlikely that he saw it this way, though, resigning his post just two months later in July. To the cynical eye, it may appear that Gill's brief flirtation of politics was nothing more than a transparent attempt to gain a place amongst the region's decision-makers. I mean, thoughts? I mean, yeah... You know, you don't sign up for the local elections, miss by one vote, and then resign if, you know, you're sort of, you know, really into the cause, really think it's like the right thing for you. He clearly wanted to be at the table, making the decisions. If anything, you know, buddying up. So even sort of after his time, he'd have contacts to sort of allow what I can only imagine to be sort of rabid expansion of, you know, a poorly managed zoo. Yeah, I mean, his dreams, he and a lady called Karen Brewer, who we'll find out about more in a couple of episodes time, were quite keen on sort of, you know, using any media mouthpiece that would give them the airtime to talk about their plans. Uh, one of their big bugbears was a car park expansion. So it wasn't even like animal cages. It just uh, they wanted to get sort of more footfall in, uh, which seems, you know, one of their less insane ideas. But I, I feel it was a constant battle of, you know, uh, the impression there was Gil always, as we established earlier, seems to feel that he needs to be battling against someone or something, you know, an institution. And had he got on the council, the council, doubtless something else would have taken that that place as uh, the people. And I think that's how sort of these these people work. These these charismatic figures in small organisations sort of railing against the outside world. You know, yeah, he would have been fighting against the establishment until, you know, he'd become part of the establishment if he'd got on that council. But then something else would have taken... I don't think he would have sat back and realised that, I think. No, oh, no, that requires way too much introspection. Yeah, and also, you know, that's that's how we work. That seems to be how he, he ran things. You know, it's, it's, it's us against the world um, until I, you know, tip you out of the boat to badly mix a metaphor. But, yeah, he's um, he's quite something. He didn't even express that much of like a coherent political ideology before. I mean, as a small business owner, the sort of the drift to conservatism kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, that, like that's not an unusual thing that he's done there. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It's it, as you said, there was no protracted interest either before or after. You know, I don't think this is a man who's sort of. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but again, from what I've read about him, um, doesn't seem particularly sort of au fait with current affairs. Um, you know, doesn't seem sort of interested in like the minute of party politics. It, it seemed very much a, an opportunity was there. He tried to take it. Uh, that's the impression that, that I'm getting. It, it didn't pan out and he sort of walked away. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it was a uh, swing and a miss, but, you know, that such is the ways of the gill.
Now, looking at David, one traditionally Tory view that he holds is being strongly deregulation, although one cannot help but wonder if this is solely influenced by regulations and a lack of regard for them being what keep on landing him in court. That and dead animals. And speaking of dead animals, you having fun yet, Geordie? You know, do a podcast, have a laugh. I'm having a great time hearing about how a man loves deregulation just because he's tired of paying fines for the animals he's killed. If I wanted to shoot a rhino after letting it run towards a motorway, then frankly, all this red tape. <laughs> Who is the government to stand in my way of letting a rhino loose and subsequently shooting it? The irony is red tape seems to have been a more effective barrier substance than what he was saving <laughs> the rhino pens out of. <laughs> it's just... Like, I'll, I'll go into it um, later in another episode in a bit more detail, but I went to South Lakes uh, a few times. I went once with, with my dad when we'd been up to the, the Lake District. And we walked around, you know, it was... This would have been maybe early 2000s, so prior to this. But I remember we were sort of there and just walking around looking at the, the various animals, innocent 10, 11-year-old James not knowing about the unimaginable horrors going on behind the scenes. And we were stood there in this, this field, and there was basically like an electric fence, which was the best three feet high and then a bit of a ditch, and a rhino stood there. And I, I vividly remember my dad sort of looking at it and going, you know, if that thing really wanted to, it could come for us and we you know and it was just sort of one of those little things and he was like oh there must have been he's like maybe there's a reason maybe their legs struggle with ditches or whatever and sort of look you know it's just sort of one of those little things that sticks in your mind and looking when i was researching this it sort of seemed quite prescient you know what i mean it was like you know a bloke who never worked in animal management or you know had any kind of formalized experience in zookeeping or any industry similar to it could spot that very briefly just on a walk around of his son <laughs> yeah there are like sort of common sense things like the strength of certain metals you know and how flimsy fences don't work that effectively but three and a half but, ton know, animals can't be kept in with wire yeah like i think you know there are some things that just sort of hurt you know innate human knowledge yes. but, which i think more than anything though shows it's not that david guilt mismanaged or didn't understand he like he actively didn't care oh yeah and I, I think you know that is a didn't care i'm not sure is right because i feel at least early doors there was certainly an, an element of um <laughs> he maybe didn't care in terms of the the level of welfare and animal support that we would expect from a proper professionally ran sort of animal management institution be it a zoo or a farm whatever else but i think he cared there was a degree of passion there certainly and you'll see particularly in the next episode i think you'll see the cause of what what caused that the cause of what caused the cause of what led to that waning because i feel at this point though he feels he knows best and he blindly ignores expert advice but you get the impression he's at least trying to do the right thing to a degree I mean, I'm not defending yeah. him. I think he's a particularly objectionable individual who, you know, I, I feel I have very little, very little good to say about him. But in in an attempt to be objective and not just sort of bash everything about and make out like he's the worst person ever and has been since day dot, you know, I think to get to the stages which he does, there has to be a, a degree of um, 
a transformation of sorts. And I don't think you get into doing something like this, like running this big zoo, without having some genuine love and interest for animals. I don't know what, yeah. what are your thoughts. Are. Am I just giving him like too easy a time here? I, I agree. Yeah, like especially to initially get it. And, you know, like shoveling shit's not fun. So I do think you have to like enjoy animals to an extent. Part of me does wonder though if maybe he he likes the animals, but not in a sort of likes them for what they are, likes them for what they can do for him. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit more cynical. And, maybe even a bit less nuanced and just think of him as just a bad person maybe he maybe genuinely loves the animals but maybe that's because they've afforded him the lifestyle that he wanted the people that he you know is attracted to are indeed sort of at least partially attracted to him because he has all these animals well, they sort of you know really provide him with something there is a, a certain power thing over the owning and controlling of animals you know on a grander scale you read about sort of coalition forces raiding Saddam's palace and finding lions and tigers and brown bears and Gaddafi kept a menagerie so real egomaniacs are drawn to it but even on a on a smaller level and I'm not bad as Gil is I'm not going to compare his crimes to this man but I don't know if you followed the Barry Bennell case at all the uh, the sexual abuse in football sort of through Crew Alexandra yeah um, but I, I mean, you might have seen the headlines. Uh, but basically, Benel was a, a sort of scout and later youth team coach who groomed and abused hundreds of children. It's a harrowing story. But one of the things, again, that sort of stuck out was a lot of them told the same stories when he stayed at his house. He had a, a wild cat and a monkey and a bird that could talk. And again, these sort of lower key, dangerous animals that, you know, this this predatory man who was seeking to impose his will on others clearly also felt drawn to these creatures yeah there is like so that there is just that real you know power dynamic there you know the animals can't report you for mistreating them either not even i think it's just sort of they you know being around these dangerous creatures makes you feel like you're a, a sort of powerful dangerous creature as well yeah i think that's entirely fair you know, I think there's, I, I don't know how much has been written on it, but I think there is, there's definitely something, and I, again, just for clarity, I'm not comparing David Gill to a notorious paedophile, you know, bad as he is, I feel there is, there is clearly a, a bridge of differentiation between the two men. But um, yeah, I just think it is, it is notable that, you know, these, you know, from a, a small homegrown monster to dictators who might have dominate entire nations, this this pull to the, the biggest, most dangerous creatures that are available to them is uh, is clearly something that uh, a certain sort of facet of megalomania attaches itself to. And I'm not saying anyone who wants to work with these animals has that. I'm sure that, you know, the vast majority of animal care professionals are motivated by sort of good and honest reasons. But I think there will always be those people who, who see them more for the, the yeah, power Yeah, nonetheless, the it does danger. attract a type of person. Absolutely. You know, and I, I just, uh, I feel with Gil, that's maybe why he got in. And I feel that also explains that some of the bullheadedness of feeling that like he gets these creatures on a sort of instinctual level. It goes back to that Tarzan thing, you know, we were talking about last time, the man lord of nature. Yeah. So getting back uh, sort of off that little diversion, we've got the next incident that we're facing. So December 2008, tragedy comes once again to Furnace. As mentioned earlier, one of the park's more notable features was the free-roaming nature of some of the smaller creatures that lived there. 
Peacocks, wallabies, parrots, and some smaller deer species all enjoyed a degree of freedom, but most striking of all were the troop of ring-tailed lemurs that delighted visitors with their lovable antics and were so fearless they were known to leap on a visitor's heads and shoulders as they went about their day. Whilst they spent daytime like this, even David Gill realised that frail mammals from the Madagascan tropics probably be rather unenthusiastic about a night under the stars during the harsh Cumbrian winters. So at the end of each day, they were quartered in a heated nighttime house. One night, the house went up in flames. Rescue efforts were attempted and some of the rarer lemurs were saved, but 30 of them died, either from the fire directly or by inhalation of the smoke and subsequent asphyxiation. The incident that was later blamed on a faulty heater. Much like the other cases we've talked about, this is perhaps plausible in isolation, but when you take a step back, then a pattern appears to form. A tragic or ridiculous incident would take place, public outcry would follow, and the zoo, for zoo, also read David Gill, would either blame an external factor or decry their rotten luck. Eventually, though, there would come an instant where this denial of responsibility would be impossible. I mean, yeah, it's it's awful. You know, the, these animals were locked up at night in an enclosed space and burnt to death. There is really no, no yeah. nice way of saying but there's that. There's no nice way, yeah, to put it. It, it is just horrible. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Like you said, each individual event is like, oh, you could say, oh, that's really horrible. You know, how unfortunate. I guess things do happen. But when, you know, you sort of got a crisis happening every six months and sort of freak accidents that are, you know, a regular occurrence, you know, maybe some sort of regulatory body needs to start, step in and have a look. Yeah, and again, in his defence, apparently Gil did uh, sort of lead the charge into the rescue, pulled several lemurs out the fire himself. And I think that's the thing in a in a sense of sort of physical bravery. He isn't lacking, you know, he, he the the ridiculous way he carries on around animals. Some would call it bravery, some would call it recklessness, but you know, there isn't a a consideration for, for his own physical harm. Yeah, but, like I think that also extends to the animals. He's got no consideration for the animals' harm either. Well, yeah, you exactly. Know, it's not enough, it's not enough to just care for the animals. It's great if he loves them. It, that's not enough. Like you need a degree of competency as well. It goes I, I into... love people, but I don't try and do heart surgery. Yeah, and I, I, well, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it sort of goes into that sort of reckless lifestyle. You know, as as we said last time, he's always looking for fun. He's always looking for a, a thrill and excitement. And the idea of rescuing animals from a burning building—it's such a trope that you know you couldn't put it in a modern drama, as it would almost be laughable. That it's it's such a, a simple way of showing that a character is a good person, sort of pulling a cat out of a uh, a burning house. But for David, it, it does appear to have been the uh, just another opportunity to be a hero. Like that that is a that is the impression I'm getting is that he he, he sort of enjoys the the crises because it gives him an opportunity to you know really show himself off. Well, exactly. I think it's the same as the rhino with the shooting. It's, don't worry, I've got it under control. You know, I seize the moment, I handle the situation. And in his head, it's not that he caused the situation through shoddy preparation and fulfilling his more boring but more important duties. It's diving into the rescue. Yeah, he's such like he's much more of a it's better to ask forgiveness than permission kind of person. Oh, I I do not think David Gill has ever asked for permission to do anything. And, you know, um, <laughs> ever. 
<laughs> yeah. he, he just seems sort of needlessly defiant at some points. I bet he's one of those blokes who sort of walks on the grass when there's a there's a sign not to just to make a point. You know, you don't know who he's making it to. There's no ground staff anywhere of whatever park or building you're near, but but you you can't tell Davy G what to do. He will shoot your rhinos. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's the kind of person that takes a picture of himself doing it with a middle finger up. He, I bet he doesn't even smoke, but he lights up under no smoking signs every time. <laughs> There's an album on Facebook, just him doing that <laughs> in different locations. Caption, sticking it to the man. <laughs> Open brackets, I've got a zoo, dot, 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 ladies, close brackets. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, Davy G, you bring us so much joy and yet you bring so much pain and misery to others. Uh, you need to be stopped, but, you know, you, you tell a good story before that. Oh, <laughs> uh, David, you are great source material and <laughs> a horrible human being. <laughs> I feel that's quite a good note to end on. It's been a slightly shorter one this week. Um, we've got a big one next week, you know, a lot to pack in. So next week, a bit of a treat for you. I've got probably the most harrowing point that the episodes get to. But to balance it out, I think we've also got what I will only refer to as possibly the best Amazon product review section of all time. There's a lot of stiff competition, but I think I found it. And I think old Davy G is responsible for getting it out there. So uh, thanks for coming on, Geordie. Did you have fun? Uh, I had a great time. I mean, I've left actually slightly unnerved, but, you know, obviously we've had you know, you're saying the peak of the tragedy is coming up and, you know, we've just ended on Lima's being burned to death in a hut. And, you know, we, we've ended that by saying, well, it gets worse, don't worry. I probably won't sleep until the next episode, but I've had a good time, I guess. I felt what our friendship really needed was more discussing of uh, appalling things happening to endangered species. Well, I'm not going to be happy until I'm un- unnerved when you call me because I know I'm going to be hearing about something unpleasant. Just get the phone call. He's blown up a panda. Get the recording equipment. <laughs> We're going on site for this one. Get the mic and get in the car. Uh, I should point out that David Gill has never blown up a panda. I'm not saying he wouldn't. I'm just saying the opportunity has been thus denied to him. I mean, the, the, the animal feed salesman that forgot there was dynamite in the feed. Oh, I just, David Gill, thank you for this material. But also, I'm so sad that this podcast is possible. (laughs) 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 Oh, Jesus. Right. Okay. Right. Well, look, thank you, Geordie. Thank you to everybody who has listened. We massively, massively appreciate your support and trying to get this off the ground. Um, You know, if you stuck around since episode one, God knows why, but thank you. We are immensely grateful. And please do join us next week. As I said, we're going to have some high highs. We're going to have some low lows. We're going to have some amusing, badly spelled Amazon product reviews. And we're going to have a horrible thing happening to a truly decent person. All right. Thank you. And uh, good night. Bye, everyone.